Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today, we're going to talk about how Iran and its non-state allies across the region, the so-called axis of resistance, have responded to the war in Gaza. It was very important to send a very clear message to anyone who might seek to take advantage of the conflict in Gaza to threaten our personnel uh, here or anywhere else in the region. Don't do it. Uh, I made very clear that the attacks, the threats coming from militia that are aligned with Iran are totally unacceptable. We're not looking for conflict with Iran. We've made that very clear. But we'll do what's necessary uh, to, uh, to protect our, our, our personnel, uh, be they military or civilian. Resistance leaders in the region say that until the full rights of the state of Palestine are realized and until an outcome is reached in confronting the occupation in the region, they will keep their fingers on the trigger. That was Iran's foreign minister, Hussein Amir Abdullahian, talking about how Iran-backed militias across the region link what they're doing to what's happening in Israel-Palestine. Before him, we heard U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken on a visit to Iraq in early November warning Iran and the various militias it supports not to attack U.S. personnel. For years now, Iran has built what it calls an axis of resistance. Allied militant groups across the region, Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Houthis in Yemen, big militias in Iraq and Syria, plus the Palestinian militant groups Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Iran sees these groups as its forward defense, projecting its influence in the region, deterring attacks on Iran by its rivals. Since the Hamas-led attacks in Israel on the 7th of October, the U.S. has, broadly speaking, tried to deter Iran and its non-state allies from attacking U.S. personnel or escalating against Israel itself. Still, exchanges of fire between Hezbollah and Israel have been ratcheting up, at least until the recent truce in Gaza. In Iraq and Syria too, Iran-backed groups have engaged in tit-for-tat strikes with U.S. forces. This is a clip from a few weeks ago. Tonight, at the direction of President Biden, two F-15 fighter jets launched airstrikes in eastern Syria at a weapons facility that is used by Iran's Revolutionary Guard and proxy forces that are backed by Iran. They were in response to attacks by those groups on U.S. troops in both Syria and Iraq, over 40 in the last three weeks alone that have injured nearly 50 American service members. There was yet another attack just today on a U.S. base in Syria. And in another sign of increased tensions in the region, an American Reaper drone costing about $30 million was shot down in the Red Sea by the Iranian-backed Houthi rebels. They had fired missiles last month toward Israel, which were shot down by a U.S. naval ship. Iranian Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei, shortly after Hamas's 7th of October attack, distanced Iran from the attacks, saying it wasn't directly involved, something that U.S. and Israeli officials confirm. Here are some of Khamenei's remarks. Some officials of the occupying regime have said some nonsense comments over the past few days. They introduced Iran as the one who is behind this operation. They made a mistake. We, of course, defend Palestinians. We kiss the forehead and arms of the brave fighters and youth of Palestine. Yes, it's true. But those who say that non-Palestinians were behind what was done, they do not know Palestinians well. They have underestimated the nation of Palestine. That is their mistake. So how does Iran view the Gaza war? How to understand its relations with Hamas, Hezbollah and other parts of the so-called axis of resistance? And does Israel and Hamas end their truce and go back to war in Gaza? What risk is there of a wider regional confrontation between Iran and its allies on one side and the US and Israel on the other? 
to talk about all this, I'm very happy to welcome back onto the podcast Ali Vyas, who is Director of Crisis Group's Iran Project, Senior Advisor to the President. Ali, welcome back on. Great to be back on. Thank you, Richard. So, Ali, maybe let's start. Hamas is, of course, a member of the Access of Resistance, benefits from Iran's financial military support. But as we heard just now, the Supreme Leader denies Iran was directly involved in the 7th of October attacks. And in some ways, tell me if this is wrong, but in some ways the Hamas attacks put Iran in a bit of a bind. Iran doesn't want right now a full-scale war with the US, but its axis of resistance also needs to do something, needs to respond somehow to Israel's military campaign in Gaza. Otherwise, what is it resisting? I think that's right, Richard. Iran was put on the horns of a dilemma on October 7th. If it was to restrain itself and Hezbollah and not go to the rescue of Hamas, it risked losing the credibility of this axis of resistance that it has put together over the years. But if it interfered or encouraged Hezbollah to uh, enter into the fray, then it risked a war uh, between Hezbollah and Israel slash the U.S. that would significantly diminish Hezbollah's capabilities. And so in the first scenario, it risked losing face. And in the second scenario, it risked losing a really valuable right hand. The way the Iranians ended up squaring this circle, I think, is through gradual, very calibrated escalation from different members of the Axis of Resistance, whether it's the Houthis in Yemen or the Iraqi militias, the Hashd al-Shabi in Iraq and Syria, launching attacks against uh, U.S. Uh, forces in those countries, uh, or whether it has been Hezbollah's tit-for-tat with Israel over uh, Israel's northern border, it has been able to deter further escalation But it has also done enough to save face. But of course, this is a very dangerous gamble and not a very sustainable situation if the war continues. And we'll look at all those fronts individually in a moment. Now, obviously, the war in Gaza is a tragedy on many levels. But broadly speaking, beside the dilemma that you talked about, Ali, how do you think Iran is viewing what's happened so far? Well, the outcome of the conflict so far, I think, is a mixed bag for the Iranians. On the one hand, Israel's aura of invincibility has been broken. That's for Iran, who has been at the receiving end of Israeli covert actions against Iranian nuclear and military facilities over the past few years, uh, and Israeli overt actions against Iranian assets in Syria, of course, is a welcome uh, phenomenon. The conflict has also inflicted reputational cost on Israel, the U.S. and the West writ large in the region, and that too is beneficial to Iran. The conflict has also revived the Palestinian cause in ways that it was really hard to imagine a few months ago. And for Iran, who claims that it's the flag bearer of that cause, this is a positive development. Iranian leaders also believe that Israel's response uh, to October 7th is in practice creating more enemies for Israel than Israel is killing. And that radicalization will make recruitment much easier for groups like Hamas or Hamas's successor. And also the conflict has delayed, I don't think it has derailed, but it has certainly delayed further normalization of Israel's relations with Iran's neighbors. 
and listeners to the podcast will know, but just to remind people, these are the US brokered normalization deals that saw some Arab states establish diplomatic relations with Israel and the one that appeared to be within reach before the 7th of October is hard to say how close, but maybe within reach was with the Saudis. And of course, that is now very much frozen with the war in Gaza. Yes, that's right. And finally, I think the Iranians probably believe that deterrence has held. U.S. and Israel were very cautious and they were thinking twice about every action that they were taking, lest it would result in a regional conflagration. Very cautious about every action outside Gaza, you mean, of course. So against Hezbollah in Iraq and Syria in the Gulf. Correct. But that's not the full picture. I think there are also failures for Iranian strategy. I said that their deterrence has held, but I think it has, its credibility has diminished in the sense that Iran's reluctance to enter into the fray, Hezbollah's reluctance to get into a conflict was obvious for everyone to see. Ayatollah Khamenei very quickly, three days after October 7th came out and publicly took distance from uh, Hamas's action. He supported it, but he clearly noted that Iran was not involved in the operational planning of what happened on October 7th. Nasrullah was very cautious when he finally spoke out almost a month after the conflict began. Uh, and so it was obvious to the naked eye that Iran and Hezbollah did not want an all-out war. Iran's initial implied red line uh, of Israeli ground incursion into Gaza quickly turned pink. And, you know, one of the members of this axis, which is Hamas, has been severely diminished uh, and will probably be weakened more. So all of that, I think, has put into question the credibility of Iran's deterrence. The second major cost of this war for Iran is that it has shut the door on diplomacy between Iran and the United States. Let's remember that in the summer of this year, Iran and the U.S. reached a de-escalatory understanding through which uh, Iran had gained some economic reprieve, uh, whether it was through unfreezing some of Iran's frozen assets abroad uh, or uh, a more uh, lax enforcement of U.S. sanctions on Iranian oil exports to China. And Iran and the U.S. were supposed to uh, meet in Muscat on October 18th to start talking about uh, the future of nuclear diplomacy, uh, what kind of uh, agreement uh, they can come up with once they know who the next U.S. president is going to be. And uh, for now, there is no prospect for this kind of engagement uh, as a result of the fact that Iran is complicit in supporting Hamas financially and militarily over the years and the uh, political cost of this kind of engagement for the Biden administration as we get closer to the elections is just prohibitive. So, as you say, Iran doesn't want a major escalation with the US now, doesn't want, to put it very bluntly, doesn't want to sacrifice Hezbollah, the deterrence it sees Hezbollah providing, doesn't want to sacrifice that over Gaza. At the same time, it did put forward these two red lines initially even if implicitly. One was ground operations, Israeli ground operations in Gaza. And as you say, that turned out to be pink. Iran and its allies did not dramatically step up attacks after Israeli forces entered Gaza. But the other red line was the destruction of Hamas. Now, the complete destruction of Hamas seems very unlikely. But is there a stage at which Israeli operations do so much damage to Hamas that Iran's calculations, Hezbollah's calculations change 
and they feel they need to get more involved? Well, here um, I have, Richard, a 90% rule, uh, which means that I think the way the Iranians look at this is that even if Hamas is diminished by 90%, they can still use that 10% and declare victory uh, in the sense that I think both for Hamas and Iran, survival is victory. Even if that means that Hamas has been diminished by 90%, if it's not completely destroyed, which seems to be an unachievable objective and therefore uncrossable Iranian red line, that's good enough. And so, you know, one has to understand that at the end of the day, as you said, I think the whole objective of what Iran calls forward defense, which is this idea of having partners and proxies that would deter uh, an attack on Iran's soil, the ultimate objective is always the protection of the homeland, is not necessarily the protection of Gaza or the Palestinian people. But so as long as uh, Iran can get Israel bugged down into uh, an unwinnable conflict, uh, that is, I think, good enough for the Iranians. And if you look at reactions at the regional level, one of the first phone calls that uh, Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia had was with his Iranian counterpart. Everybody has reached out to the Iranians, whether it's been the Europeans or the Turks or the Qataris or even the Egyptians. Everybody has talked to them uh, to make sure that this conflict does not devolve into a region-wide conflagration. And so Iran, I think, to a great extent, has been able to get what it wanted out of this conflict, even though, as I said, uh, nothing is black and white. And of course, it has had costs for them as well. Has Iran been involved at all in the hostage exchanges? Well, it appears that uh, they've at least helped with some of the uh, Thai uh, hostages. But of course, the heavy lifting has been done by the Qataris. And the only way that you can mediate these kind of negotiations is if you have a relationship with everyone. And the Qataris do and Iranians don't. And one has to also remember that Iran has influence over Hamas. It certainly does not have control. And we've seen this uh, relationship going through ups and downs in ways that it's actually pretty rare in the network of Iranian partners and proxies in the region. In 2012, we had a complete breakdown of the relationship because Hamas sided against the Assad regime and so turned its back on axes of resistance. That was during the initial demonstrations and the brutal crackdown of demonstrations in Syria by, as you say, the Assad regime. Absolutely. And eventually they patched up the relationship in, in 2014. But this kind of rupture is very rare to see uh, in Iran's relationships within the axis of resistance. Uh, and so Iran is not very well placed to be able to play the role of an intermediary here. And in some ways, Hamas is, of course, a Palestinian uh, Islamic Jihad in some ways are distinct from the other parts of the axis of resistance in that they're Sunni rather than Shia. Yes, that's right. But again, the reason Iran picked up the Palestinian cause that was left on the ground by the Arabs in the 1980s was that the Iranians realized that this is the cause that allows them to transcend some of their inherent limitations as a Persian nation, as a Shia nation, because this was a trans-Islamic cause. And this is why, again, anything that would revive that cause uh, would overall be seen as a positive for the Iranians. And so I don't want to spend too long on Lebanon because we've talked about it quite a bit on previous episodes. But, you know, as you say, Nasrallah, the Hezbollah leader, made a couple of speeches, both of which, despite the fiery rhetoric, sort of signaled that Hezbollah didn't want things to escalate. And as you say, 
Iran has a strong interest in that as well. Do you think there's a scenario in which Hezbollah's interests and Iran's interests, that there's anything that could lead them to diverge? I think that is extremely unlikely. In fact, what we have seen in the course of this conflict is that uh, Iran, even more than it was the case in the past, has delegated some of the major strategic decisions to Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah. He is uh, very trusted by the supreme leader of Iran, and they believe that he not only as an Arab, as somebody who is based in the region, understands the situation better than the Iranians do, but they also believe that he is strategic and pragmatic. And therefore, you know, this is a phenomenon that started with the civil war in Syria in 2011-2012, but I think now has reached a pinnacle uh, that in many ways it is Hassan Nasrullah who's calling the shots. And in some ways, since the death of Qasem Soleimani, the former head of Iran's Revolutionary Guards, the IRGC, who used to play this leadership role within the axis of resistance. We'll talk about his killing a bit more later. But since then, in some ways, since then, Nasrallah has gained in stature and authority. That too has contributed to Nasrallah playing a much more uh, important role. What Soleimani's successor has done is that he doesn't have the charisma of Soleimani or doesn't have the personal relationships that Soleimani had with a lot of the leaders within the axis of resistance. Uh, his uh, Arabic is not as fluent as uh, Soleimani's was. Uh, and so in that sense, what Qa'ani, uh, the successor of Soleimani, has been able to achieve is to create more of a coordination mechanism within the network. Uh, So each actor still has a degree of autonomy, of course, and makes their own decisions because they operate in their own context that they understand better than anybody else. But at the same time, they coordinate closely among themselves. Uh, And we've seen this over the past uh, few weeks that the degree of escalation has been more or less calibrated across the board. So let's talk then about the Iran-backed groups in Iraq and Syria and tell me, if this is wrong, but broadly speaking, when the US was fighting ISIS some years ago, there was a sort of detente between the Iran-backed militias, US forces, as they both pursued this same goal, defeating ISIS. Now, that ended when former US President Donald Trump pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal in, what, 2018? And things sort of escalated with these tit-for-tat attacks between Iran-backed militias in Iraq and Syria and US forces. And that included the U.S. killing of Qasem Soleimani. But then for about a year or so before the 7th of October, there was, again, a sort of quiet, a de-escalation that coincided with that understanding that you talked about earlier over Iran's nuclear program. We'll come back to that in a moment. But before the 7th of October and the escalation since then, there was this period of relative calm. Sure. In fact, part of the de-escalatory understanding that Iran and the U.S. had agreed to was that uh, neither side was going to target uh, the other's military personnel and assets in the region. And uh, we had seen a period of calm in uh, Iraq for more than a year. There were no attacks against U.S. forces. We had seen a lull in attacks against U.S. forces in Syria since March of 2023. And of course, all of that came to an end after October 7th, when we had uh, several dozen uh, attacks uh, against U.S. forces, both in Iraq and Syria, almost equal number. 
which resulted in, again, dozens of casualties, uh, thankfully no fatalities. But the U.S. has responded to some of these attacks at the rate of, I would say, almost one to five, one to four. But that uh, de-escalatory understanding seems to have come to an end. But a senior Iranian official recently told me that these attacks are a function of the degree of support that the U.S. provides to Israel, whether that is unconditional support for Israel, what Israel does in Gaza, that means that attacks uh, against U.S. forces in the region are going to increase. And if the U.S. tries to restrain Israel, uh, pull Israel back, the number of attacks will go down. And in fact, we have seen that in the few days of truce between Israel and Hamas, that there have been no attacks against U.S. forces in the region. So there is definitely a correlation there. And so the big Iraqi groups, I mean, the, probably the most famous one is the Kataib Hezbollah, but there's also several others uh, that are part of this new coalition, the Islamic resistance. Do you want to say a little bit more about the relationship, sort of their, what they decide, what's decided in Tehran? How does that work? Look, again, I don't think it's a question of dictating to these groups uh, what they should or should not do, but it's a, it's a question of coordination because... Uh, at the end of the day, there is an alignment of interest between all of these groups. Uh, Iran, of course, provides financial and military support for all of them, training as well. Uh, but um, they all have similar interests and, and therefore they coordinate uh, among one another. So if, for instance, there is a common enemy in the form of ISIS, uh, they would turn their guns towards that enemy uh, and not target uh, the U.S. forces, or if Iran, for instance, it comes to an understanding which benefits, again, all of them, they comply with that kind of understanding. And now that they all have an interest in deterring Israel from expanding the war or the U.S. from entering into the fray, uh, again, they all act in a coordinated fashion. But there is also uh, the reality that Iran's control over these groups fits into a spectrum with some of these groups, Iran has longer history, closer relationship, much more trust, I would say, than is the case with some others who are not as closely aligned with Iran uh, or there's not as much history between them. Of course, when you put all of these groups on a spectrum, Hezbollah is really at the one end of the spectrum. The trust and coordination is absolute between them. And Iran and Hezbollah really act like two NATO allies. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have the Houthis in Yemen, who are fiercely independent and uh, have a long track record of ignoring Iranian advice. And then the Iraqi groups, the Syrian groups, they all fall in between. And in Iraq, we've seen a mushrooming of different militias since the emergence of ISIS. Uh, and some of these groups uh, act in ways that are not necessarily uh, closely coordinated with Iran. And this is one of the risks of a country like Iran, a, a state, subcontracting its uh, regional foreign policy to non-state actors, because it would then be held responsible for actions of, of some of these groups who don't necessarily have a tight leash. Yeah, I was th so, so that's what I was going to come to. I mean, if we're thinking of escalation risks. You know, on the one hand, as you say, Iran subcontracting what it calls its forward defense, its policy in the region to non-state armed groups over which it has, you know, the degree of control it has falls on a spectrum, doesn't dictate what they do on a daily basis in many cases. And as we saw with the Hamas attacks, one of them can do something that actually, you know, perhaps in some ways doesn't serve Iran's interests. 
could easily happen in Iraq and Syria, that a militia ends up bombing a US base and killing US service people and that causes some sort of escalation that perhaps wasn't in Iran's interest. So on the one hand, you have that. On the other hand, the US did kill Qasem Soleimani some years ago, you know, about the most inflammatory action imaginable at the time, almost. And the US and Iran didn't go to war, even then, even under President Trump, who was more reckless in some ways than this administration. How should we sort of unpack those escalation risks? So I think it's not too difficult to try to unpack it in the sense that at the end of the day, the real red line for Iran uh, is any action against Iran on its own soil. Uh, Even the Trump administration didn't go that far. Uh, They killed Soleimani in Iraq. They considered targeting Iranian soil. Um, We know oil facilities or petrochemical facilities offshore uh, of Iran, but they didn't go that far. So that's the real red line that would result in significant escalation. I think the real risk here is some kind of mistake or miscalculation that could uh, result in tensions uh, spinning out of control. We know that some of the attacks against U.S. facilities uh, were done with the, the purpose of killing Americans. They were not just signaling exercises. These were the attacks after the 7th of October or after the killing of Soleimani? Both. Uh, So retaliation that Iran demonstrated through a barrage of uh, ballistic missiles that it fired into U.S. bases in Iraq were aimed at killing Americans. By sheer luck, no one was killed and that conflict was not escalated. And we know that since October 7th, some of the attacks were really targeted with the objective of killing uh, U.S. forces. And again, I think it's been mostly luck that the tensions have been contained. But again, when you have so many points of friction, whether it's the Houthis firing missiles towards U.S. vessels in the Red Sea uh, or uh, different Shia militias in Iraq firing missiles and rockets that are not precision guided, it's a gamble and it's a dangerous gamble. Uh, And the longer the situation goes on, Uh, the higher the risk that finally somebody or, God forbid, a group of people will be killed. And then that is when tensions could uh, escalate. So let's move then to the nuclear program and Iran's sort of nuclear calculations. Now, you talked earlier about the sense that Tehran maybe had that its deterrence was diminished, that because it hasn't done some of the things it sort of implicitly said it might in the face of Gaza's destruction. It has the sense that its deterrence is not what it was. I mean, what does that mean for its calculations on the nuclear program? Well, this is something that worries me because if Iran's regional deterrence has diminished or there is a perception in Tehran uh, that uh, it has diminished, then the logical choice to try to make up for that is to gain the ultimate deterrent, which comes in the form of nuclear weapons. And Iran is now closer than ever to the verge of being able to weaponize its nuclear program. Now, the combination of that perception and the fact that as a result of uh, the war in Gaza, there is currently no prospect for resumption of negotiations between Iran and the U.S., I think uh, makes for a very dangerous mixture because the incentive is higher to cross the Rubicon and get to nuclear weapons. And the threat perception 
is also higher because the regional deterrence has been weakened. And so there's a combination of different factors. The fact that the U.S. withdrew from the JCPOA, the nuclear deal in 2018, the fact that uh, negotiations to revive the agreement between 2021 and 2023 failed to achieve that objective, and the fact that now we are in a situation that there is no prospect for a diplomatic breakthrough has basically created a situation in which uh, Iran could soon come to a conclusion that it no longer looks at its nuclear program as leverage for getting out from under U.S. sanctions, but as actually a program that could bring about the kind of protection that it is not able to get in any other form. And Ali, if we go back to the pre-7th of October de-escalatory arrangement that Iran and the U.S. had, basically, as you talked about, basically pausing Iran's nuclear development in exchange for sort of more lax implementation of some of the sanctions, some of the oil sales to China, some Iranian assets unfrozen for humanitarian use in Iran. They're now in Qatar. Basically, the idea from Washington's side was to buy a bit of time before the U.S. elections without a crisis over Iran's nuclear program. How much did that arrangement actually stop Iran's nuclear advances? And from what I understand, Tehran also saw that as an arrangement that benefited the US more than it did Iran. Yeah, the no deal, no crisis situation was supposed to create, uh, basically put a lid on Iran's uh, nuclear advancements. Uh, Iran was supposed to freeze the accumulation of 60% enrichment, uh, which uh, basically is very close to weapons grade, uh, and also f- uh, stop producing any additional advanced centrifuges. Now, the recent report from the International Atomic Energy Agency that came out earlier this month demonstrated that uh, Iran has resumed accumulation of 60%. It has slowed it down, but it has not stopped it as it had committed to. And we no longer have eyes over Iran's production of advanced centrifuges, but it is safe to assume, I think, that they're still producing those machines as well. And this is partly in reaction to the fact that the U.S. has also, uh, post-October 7th, uh, not delivered on some of its commitments. Uh, it has promised to crack down on Iran's oil exports to China, uh, and it has put a hold on Iran's ability to use its uh, unfrozen assets in Doha for humanitarian trade. And so currently it appears that that de-escalatory understanding has collapsed. But one of the key points of that understanding for the Iranians was that it was also supposed to be a gateway towards further discussions about what comes next, uh, because the Iranians didn't want to allow the U.S. just to have a quiet election uh, in uh, 2024, only for the U.S. to come back to the table uh, and tell the Iranians that the JCPOA is no longer relevant and they have to negotiate a new deal from scratch, which would take another few years to uh, uh, to conclude. And by that point, Iran... Uh, would have lived under sanctions for more than a decade. And that was a situation that was unacceptable uh, to the Iranians. Uh, And so uh, I'm now afraid that because they're unsatisfied uh, with the status quo, because the program is once again uh, out of the box and there is basically no constraints on it, because Iran's differences with the uh, IAEA are not going to be resolved in the absence of a broader political agreement between Iran and the West, that at some point uh, it is likely that we will see a central resolution against Iran uh, at the IAEA's Board of Governors, uh, I would bet probably at some point next spring. Iran is 
definitely going to respond to that kind of censure by uh, escalating its nuclear, ratcheting up its nuclear program, uh, which again, uh, as you can imagine, in a context that the region is still in turmoil uh, because of what's happening in Gaza, uh, I think would, again, make for a very dangerous mixture. Also, it's not hard to imagine uh, that at some point Israel uh, because of Iran's complicity in supporting Hamas over the years, will try to take revenge against Iran by either assassinating senior Iranian military officials or targeting Iranian nuclear or military facilities. And that, too, is, is bound to create uh, tensions. And so it's hard to imagine that we can get through 2024 with no diplomatic exit ramp no way of containing tensions and no light at the end of the tunnel. And Ali, what would an Iranian nuclear acceleration, what would that look like? It can take many different forms. The Iranians can still continue to shave off the IAEA's ability to monitor the program without necessarily violating their basic commitments uh, under the Comprehensive Safeguards Agreement. Earlier this year, they revoked the visas of one third of the IAEA's inspectors. And that diminished the agency's ability to be able to monitor uh, Iran's nuclear advancements effectively. They can increase the rate of accumulation of 60%. They can increase the level of enrichment to 90%. Imagining that because the U.S. already has its hands full with the war in Ukraine, with the war in Gaza, with re-election, uh, of the Biden administration, that it might not have the appetite to enter into a conflict with Iran because Iran is enriching to 90%. They can produce more advanced centrifuges. There, there's so much that they can do that would be seen as highly problematic. And again, the risk here is that the Iranians might calculate that the other side doesn't have enough bandwidth to be able to take any action. But let me add this, Richard, that I think the bigger strategic problem here is that in general, in the West, I fear there is no strategy on how to deal with this issue, which has not gone away because of everything else that has happened. Iran's nuclear program is still advancing, is closer than ever to the threshold of nuclear weapons. And the fact that we're all talking about other things, uh, whether it's Ukraine or Gaza, doesn't mean that this issue has been resolved. And the problem is, even in a scenario that the Biden administration is reelected and they want to resume diplomacy with Iran, it's just hard to imagine how they can come up with an agreement that is mutually tolerable in a sense that Iran would, by 2025, Iran would have more than 200 percent of the leverage it had in 2015 with which we got the JCPOA, that 90% of the political elite in Washington believed that it was a bad deal. How on earth can we get to a deal that is more sellable, more sustainable uh, in very polarized American politics uh, than the JCPOA, with Iran having so much more leverage, with the P5 plus one being completely shattered because of the uh, differences we now have between Russia and China on the one hand and the West on the other, uh, and with the U.S. having maxed itself out of leverage by uh, basically sanctioning anything that moves in Iran. And I'm sure most people know, but the P5 plus one, that's the five permanent members of the UN Security Council plus Germany, which are the parties with Iran to the JCPOA, the nuclear deal. And they largely agreed in 2015, 2016 about how to deal with Iran's nuclear program, but now, of course, don't. 
So, Ali, the 7th of October attacks, the war in Gaza, they've definitely frozen, as we talked about, for now, any Saudi normalisation with Israel. But they haven't yet disrupted the rapprochement between Saudi and Iran. As you said, one of the first calls that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman made after the 7th of October was to President Raisi of, of Iran. I think President Raisi also subsequently attended this big meeting hosted by the Saudis in Riyadh. So the deal that China brokered earlier this year between Saudi Arabia and Iran, both countries re-establishing diplomatic relations, how's that all going? Well, that process seems to be on track, uh, and I think it has paid off handsomely uh, for the Saudis, because the entire objective of uh, normalizing relations uh, with Iran uh, from the Saudi perspective, I think, was uh, that they learned the lessons of uh, maximum pressure that the Trump administration uh, uh, used against Iran. Um, that uh, uh, basically once tensions between Iran and the U.S. flare up, uh, the Saudis or the Emiratis uh, could be caught in the crossfire uh, if they are uh, entirely siding with the United States. Um, I think that the, the lesson of the hot summer of 2019 in which there was this attack against uh, Saudi uh, oil facilities in Aramco was a wake-up call um, that normalized relations with Iran would basically uh, get them out of the line of fire between Iran and the U.S. Uh, and now, uh, you know, it would have been hard to imagine last year, at this, uh, if, if we go one year back and, and imagine that uh, 7th of October had happened in 2022 and not 2023, it would have been hard to imagine that the Houthis would not target Saudi Arabia uh, that was considering normalizing its relations with Israel. But now, because uh, the Saudis and the Iranians uh, have uh, mended their ties, uh, the Houthis are targeting the U.S. and Israel and not Saudi Arabia. Um, and so I think the Saudis have absolutely been able to get what they wanted, uh, and they have shielded themselves off of tensions between Iran and the U.S. and their respective uh, allies uh, in the region. But the relationship between the two countries have changed from confrontational into neutral. It hasn't moved into cooperative. Uh, there is really not much positive that the Iranians have uh, been able to get out of the relationship, other than the symbolic and the diplomatic value of it. Uh, but uh, what the Iranians wanted the most, which is Saudi investment uh, into Iran's economy, is simply not possible as long as Iran is at daggers drawn with Saudi's allies in the West and primarily the United States. And that's because of the US and other Western sanctions that make it hard for Saudis others to invest in Iran. Yes, that's right. And Ali, do you think the improved Saudi-Iran relations, improved Iranian relations with Arab powers in the Gulf more broadly, do you think this offers either a way into the nuclear crisis, a way of curbing Iran's nuclear ambitions, or alternatively, in managing risks of an escalation involving the axis of resistance and Israel and the US? I mean, is Saudi diplomacy diplomacy on these sort of big risks of wider conflict in the region, nuclear program, escalation involving the axis of, of resistance. 
does Gulf diplomacy, does that offer any hope of getting at those? It does. It actually has already. Um, look at the number of Iranian neighbors who have communication with Israel from Qatar to uh, the UAE to Oman. Uh, and these are all countries that actually have good relations with both sides. And so they can, and I think have already, helped deconflict and contain uh, tensions between Iran and Israel and, and the U.S. But um, creative diplomacy would actually see in the fact that Iran has now much better relations with its uh, neighbors in the Gulf uh, an opportunity for triangulating uh, a solution that would uh, basically uh, not just resolve uh, the current conflict in Gaza, but to come up with a much more sustainable solution for the Israel-Palestine conflict, and at the same time address uh, the risks of nuclear proliferation uh, in the sub-region. Uh, by that I mean, uh, you know, the mega deal between uh, Saudi Arabia and the U.S. had several elements. One of it was uh, normalization of Saudi's relations uh, with Israel. Um, a, a, another element was that the U.S. Were, uh, was to offer uh, a civilian nuclear program to Saudi Arabia, uh, in addition to security uh, assurances. Now, if the Saudis have a nuclear program, uh, of course, the U.S. can enter into a bilateral uh, understanding with Saudi Arabia to make sure that that program remains civilian in nature. And then the U.S. would have to figure out a way of making sure uh, that the same objective is reached with the Iranian nuclear program. It already has an arrangement with the UAE, uh, which also has a nuclear program. So either the U.S. can have bilateral arrangements or it can have a multilateral arrangement, which would then allow some of these countries that are very interested now to invest in the Iranian economy. They no longer pursue a zero-sum approach towards Iran. And they realize that by investing into the Iranian economy, they gain the kind of leverage they've never had with Iran. Uh, and the U.S. and the West in general have proven incapable of providing Iran with effective and sustainable sanctions relief. And so in all of that, if there was creativity and enough bandwidth, uh, I think the leadership in the U.S. could see uh, an opportunity in trying to bring about an arrangement that not only uh, results in normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel, but also offers the Palestinians uh, a, a way forward. Uh, and in the process, bring about a sub-regional arrangement that would create constraints and transparency on the nuclear programs of all of these countries and would allow Iran to economically benefit from Gulf investment. It would be a win-win-win for all sides involved. But uh, again, it's hard to be too optimistic about a solution like this because of the limited uh, bandwidth that exists right now and also the limited political space uh, as we get closer to the U.S. elections. Ali, thanks uh, so much for coming on. Thank you. My pleasure. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Iran, its non-state allies across the region, plus, of course, the war in Gaza on our website, crisisgroup.org. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub, and thanks, of course, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org, or write to me directly, Atwood at crisisgroup.org. If you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, if you like the show, 
please do say something nice about us leave us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts and i very much hope you'll join us again next time